0: Welcome
1: to Photo Taco, the only show with photography tips you can learn in the time it takes to eat a taco, or perhaps a burrito. Hey
0: everybody, welcome into another episode of Photo Taco on the Master Photography Podcast Network. I'm your host, Jeff Harmon. Thanks so much for spending a few minutes of your day with me. In this episode, I am joined by my buddy and Mr. Mad Scientist himself, Don Komarichka. How are you, Don?
1: I am well, uh, Jeff. I mean, trying to keep my sanity most days. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, especially with my uh, four and a half year old daughter in virtual daycare right. uh, virtual kindergarten, and oh, yeah. uh, and that uh, yeah, that's time consuming and really pushes the edge of my sanity. Um, so when I get to talk to grown-up people like you, uh, I actually feel pretty good about it. So thank you for <laughs> wanting to sit down with me today.
0: Yes, of course. It's it's going to be so much fun. You know, before we get into the topic, uh, very briefly, I wanted to say that one of the comments or one of the questions when I posted out there that I was going to talk with you on this subject, someone asked um, if you wear your lab coat like all the time. And I want I can say right now, he's not wearing his lab coat. I'm not. See. I'm not
1: wearing the lab coat. I mean, it does give an air of authenticity. It does almost <laughs> like for for whatever reason. And I don't mean this to be uh, racist in any way, but when you have a scientist that is speaking with a British accent, it somehow gives more gravitas to me <laughs> about what they're saying is authoritative. Maybe that's just we're a former colony here in Canada, and, and that's just kind of bred into you. But uh, no, so hey, wear the lab. I'm not a scientist, uh, but if I put a lab coat on, I might look a little bit more <laughs> like one.
0: So. Well, you certainly speak like one, right? As we're as we're talking about like technical photography topics in particular, which is why you're a great guest to have on the show to tackle this topic. So I've been doing a whole lot of testing with autofocus micro adjust, and I'm not done yet. I'm amazed at how long this testing is taking me. I think I'm around 85% of the way done with this. And I'm going to be doing an episode where I'm going to detail a whole bunch of stuff that I've learned as I've been going through this. And But as, as I've been going through this, and it just kind of resonated with me, You recently published a a video with DP Review TV about diffraction, and it coincided with my testing. I thought, I, I want to go through with Don how photographers, like a practical approach your average photographer could take to trying to figure out at what point is diffraction enough of an issue they may want to avoid certain apertures. On their lenses, but let's start at the beginning. Let's let's take one little step back first. There's a whole bunch of photographers. <laughs> I posted this in the in the Facebook group for the podcast. There were a lot saying, "I don't know what diffraction is. I don't understand it. So, can you please make sure we include a, a little bit?" of uh, an explanation there. And, And a lot, I've heard so many people try to do this and it like speaks over the top of most photographers heads. They don't understand what it is. I really loved. And before I give you a chance to define it, Don, I loved the video that you did on DP review TV. That was excellent to be able to, uh, really kind of visually show what's going on there. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes so that you can go do that. And so if you if you don't understand diffraction, and, and Don's explanation he's going to give in just a second, I'm sure is going to be awesome. But if it doesn't quite work for you, <laughs> then go check out the video, because that will probably really help clear things up. But Don, go ahead. Now that we're audio only, we're not going to be able to show the video to everybody. Can you give me a little description about what is diffraction?
1: Well, um, light gets all bendy sometimes, right? And uh, I, I don't want to talk about the actual equations and the numbers and the mathematics, but I want to make a visual experiment here. Um, imagine you have uh, an opening in uh, in a, a wall that blocks water, like a dike or something, but you've got an opening in there. Um, well, when waves pass through that opening... Um, they might be straight waves on one side, but they turn into curved waves on the other side. And the reason why I'm using water as an analogy here is because the wave nature of light behaves much the same way as water passing through an opening. In the video, I, I do an example with a, a ripple tank. It's a classic uh, physics class experiment where um, if you have uh, you know, a straight wave going through that opening, and it's a big opening, well, the middle of the wave is going to pass through just fine. It's going to keep on going. But the edges of it are going to curve. Mm -hmm. And the smaller and smaller you make that opening, the more curvy wave you have versus straight wave. And that is a direct parallel to light passing through the opening in our lens, the aperture. And so um, when you have a wide aperture, even the widest apertures, like you've got a fancy f1.2 lens, great. You still got diffraction. It's not going to be an issue, though, until your aperture gets so small that the light bends so far off course that it starts hitting pixels or photo sites on the sensor right. um, that uh, that are not the one it's supposed to be hitting. Right. right. They're, they're bending so far afield that it's going to actually lower the resolution. Yeah, you might have a fancy 50, 60 megapixel camera uh, out there. But if if you're shooting at like F32 with it, especially if you're doing close-up work with it, then light's going to get all bendy on you and it's not going to work in your favor.
0: Yeah. So yeah, yeah, in the video, you have a very good example of that. You took some shots. uh, They were macro shots. And so it kind of emphasizes the issue when you're shooting macro that can really do that. So, um, and you can see how it's, it's, much sharper with the uh, aperture 2.8 versus when you had it at f16. It was not nearly as sharp. It was, I, I know the term I've heard about a lot is muddy. It makes the image look muddy. Just hard to like, unless you have an actual image to look at, it's hard to understand what does that mean, but it it definitely takes away from the sharpness of the image. It can affect your image quality in really significant ways. And that's kind of what I wanted to try to provide a a, a practical guide To I I want to encourage people. We we do that, Don, when you and I get together, we talk about all this time. It's like doing your own little testing, right? (laughs) Doing your own experiment.
1: Yeah, I I can throw numbers at you. Yeah, yeah. and I can give you a calculator, and you can go and plug in numbers and see what the numbers say. But you know, that's that's really uh just unpractical, I think is the best word because diffraction uh, might have an impact on your images, but by making a smaller aperture, you're gaining to the perfect depth of field. And you want to make that compromise just a little bit. And there's deconvolution software out there that might be able to give you a bit of an edge back to, right. Right. So you got to see where it's going to be for yourself. And, um, uh, yeah you could print out test charts and all that stuff, but honestly, just find something organic like uh see like the door to my office is like a wood grain uh and so I mean there's infinite detail in natural stuff right, um, so like go find a tree and photograph the tree bark uh you know, even just the grass on your lawn if you can see it right now here, it's all covered in snow um <laughs> but the the idea is that you just have this mass of detail. Right. Infinite detail down on a on an organic level so that you can see when you pixel peep on your images where diffraction actually comes into play with your camera and your lens, because there's a lot of individual factors at play. So just take a bunch of images at every f-stop along the way uh, and then just be super critical, uh, blow them up 300 percent on your computer and just flip through them one at a time and and then go from the beginning to the end and see what the difference is. Right. Um, and see if that's acceptable to you. Uh, I think that's, there's no shortcut to that practical response. And you might want to do that with every lens that, uh, that it's a concern for.
0: And I, I've seen it recommended, um, to do this kind of testing, uh, taking pictures of like a grass field, getting down, like you put the camera right on the grass and or a little above, but a couple of inches above so that you also have like, as the depth of field gets narrower and narrower, it doesn't really matter because the, the focus is coming in at some point on that field and, and then you, you can make a better judgment about how the relative sharpness is, regardless of what aperture setting you, you have it set at. Or maybe a, a roof. I, I think, uh, I think that's, uh, that's been a favorite target to a, a wooden wood shingled roof that has a whole bunch of detail and lines, uh, terracotta, even just yeah,
1: shingles. just grab a shingle <laughs> and, sure. and, and get super close. Cause that's just a bunch of rocks that are tarred together. Uh, you know, sand on a beach, whatever you want, there's tons of different ideas, uh, but, but you are right to put it into a framing of, uh, well, maybe you don't, fully understand how much depth of field you need in a scene. Right. I know so many landscape photographers don't try to hit that hyperfocal distance. Um, and so they actually shoot at a smaller aperture than would be required for the scene if they focused at some imaginary point one third of the way in between right. uh, their subjects. And uh, And that's not to say that that's useful for everything. And, and there's lots of knowledge uh, that is required. But this is one easy way for you to start building up that intuition. Just get a feel for it. Uh, See where it it works for you. Um, And again, there's so many factors. There's the type of lens you're using, you know, macro photography, as you mentioned, uh, diffraction and effective apertures, that's a topic for another discussion, um, can be much, much smaller uh, uh, as you get uh, an increase in magnification. Uh, But it can also be, and I see it in the show notes here. I'm I'm doing the talking uh, here, Jeff. Uh, sensor size. So um, I'm going to turn the table uh, on this here, and I'm going to ask you: okay. uh, Does sensor size affect diffraction?
0: So I'm I'm glad I have the advantage of you pre-populating the notes with your answer, so I can cheat, <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is
0: which is good. But I think I would have had the same conclusion beforehand anyway and it sort of can it it really depends which i hate that answer on so many things with photography we well, tend it, to go there it,
1: it, fundamentally on a physics level it does not affect diffraction sure. diffraction is immaterial to the size of the sensor
0: right right the the wave experiment shows that like there's the size of the aperture is going to impact the light that's a physical phenomenon it's going to happen whether or not it shows up in your image can depend on the sensor size by means of the size of the photo sites. If your photo sites are bigger, the chances that that light's going to end up in the right photo site, even if it got bent a little bit, increase slightly. And you might get away with the diffraction not being as big a deal if your photo sites are bigger on the sensor. But I don't know. If we but- go
1: back to film uh, as a great example for this, specifically large format film, beginning era of photography, Right. You wanted to get an 8x10 or an 11x14 print. Well, that had to be shot on an 8x10 or 11x14 sheet of film, right? There, there were, this is pre-enlarger days. Um, and those cameras still exist. You can still get film in that format. And if you shot an 8x10 uh, negative at f64, at f96, whatever, and then you make a contact print, at, you know, what, 8 by 10, um, it's going to look stunningly beautiful because the physical size of the light collection area is going to uh, negate the resolution decrease of diffraction. So that also uh, bakes it back down into uh, into the digital realm here. If we're looking at a photographic recipe, um, then a micro four third sensor is potentially going to see diffraction more quickly than a full frame sensor bearing in mind that that would be comparing say like a 20 megapixel micro four thirds to a 20 megapixel full frame camera but you can get 60 megapixel full frame cameras uh and so it really isn't the size of the sensor it's the size of the photo sites on the sensor itself that's what's really going to be the uh the important difference there Right. Yeah, which is
0: – and that's why it comes back to like don't get so caught up. The, whenever we talk about this kind of a topic, there's either science or math or – it just seems to like go over people's head and they give up. They're like, I don't understand it. I'm just going to – I'm not going to stop down to F-22
1: and I'll be fine. <laughs> I I hope. Um but but if well you're... actually Jeff, this is an important consideration okay. too. That a lot of cameras will have um, high-resolution modes. Uh, this is becoming a bigger and bigger thing uh, in full-frame and micro four-thirds uh, cameras. Even I think the Fuji uh, GFX series has has this now, where um, you pixel shift the sensor, right. uh, taking between five and sixteen shots depending on the camera, uh, and you can uh, up to quadruple your resolution but the challenge with that is that when you're quadrupling the resolution you uh you are also effectively making smaller photo sites for the purposes of what diffraction might be so when i'm shooting with a lumix um s1r which is a wonderful camera absolutely love it it's 47 megapixels and it's fine if i'm uh if i am at um uh you know F- f11 f16 general i mean yeah if i really analyzed, but for most In most cases, I'm fine. But if I were to be shooting at F11 or F16 with the high-res mode turned on, generating 187 megapixel images, diffraction is going to defeat some of that increase in resolution. So I don't truly get four times uh, the the resolution in terms of the resolvable details. So, uh, again... Every scenario is different and you only really get a feel for it when you start to play with it because photography is not a numbers game anymore. You know, it's such a mix now of art and science mashed up together. Uh, and, uh, you can be an exceptional photographer without getting into the physics calculations that define diffraction.
0: When we're, we're all our own. I like it better when I'm my own judge of the image quality impact as well to, if you took two people and said, "Hey, where is the point where this diffraction becomes too much for you?" We probably end up at different spots. Like it's just going to be your oh, yeah. judgment I mean, are,
1: about it. Are are you uh, printing a sixty by forty? Inch right. print that Somebody's going to nose up to, or is it going on Instagram?
0: Right, right. So your own judgment on when is diffraction playing a big enough or negatively impacting your image enough that you don't want to shoot at that aperture. That's something that I think you are best to decide. And sure, there's this calculator thing. We'll put a link into it. It's uh, Cambridge in color. They have they actually have some phenomenal information out there. I've
1: referenced them before. Yeah, yeah they're, I, I, they, I love their they they do, do, uh, do it
0: up right. Yes, they do. And you can really, if you if you're interested in diving deep, <laughs> then that's a great entry point to going and, and getting started into a deep dive on the topic. Um, but I, I just don't think for your average photographer that's the way to go. I, I'd much rather. I'd just go out there and and try to do these tests and yourself to see and make your own judgment on, okay, I think at this aperture with my specific lens and my specific camera, now at this point, I can see how it's negatively impacting my image quality. So what would be the setup? We talked about what to shoot, but like... Tripod. Uh, what about shutter yeah, speed uh, lock and down ISO? So the frame doesn't yeah,
1: change okay. uh, manual focus as well because you want to have as much um, that is exactly the same. So you only have one variable um, that uh, that's being adjusted, and uh, and then you know whatever your maximum aperture on that lens is. And, and there's an a, another consideration here too. The maximum aperture might be the least um, uh, diffraction, uh, you know, uh, affected. But it might not be the sharpest either. Uh, You know, a lot of people say that there's a sweet spot in lenses. Often it's stopped down by about two stops from wide open. And then that just increases corner sharpness. And that has nothing to do with diffraction. It just has to do with optical design. Um, And if that were true, then the sweet spot, uh, as is defined, you know, everybody says, oh, this lens is at its best at f8 or whatever. Well, why? Why it's it's two uh, competing forces. One of them is the optical engineering of a lens is usually not its greatest wide open, and you start stopping it down, and it's get better and better and better until diffraction on the other end being so small uh, of an aperture is going to ruin the optical quality, and you open that up and open that up until diffraction is no longer an issue. And where those two things meet, that's the sweet spot. That's how it's defined. Right.
0: Okay. So you're on a tripod. Um, and then, what do you, would you say? Go to the small, the the smallest aperture, the biggest number, the smallest sized aperture to start with. And dial in some exposure. How are you going to deal, compensate for the exposure differences while well? you you do this test? Just different shutter yeah, speeds. So
1: you'll you'll be on aperture priority because yeah. uh, again, yeah, the aperture is the one that you want to be controlling. Uh, and assuming your subject is static, right? And right. Wind and motion blur is not going to be an issue. Um, and you also don't want uh, your uh, like a high sensitivity setting uh, to be adding complexity to the image. So try to shoot at your base ISO setting, right? Um, and start with your smallest aperture that your lens can, can allow you to shoot at. Sometimes it's f32, sometimes it's f22, whatever that is. Right. Uh, start there, and then take a shot dialing back and back and back, um, and uh, and then until you're completely wide open. And uh, then what I like to do um, is if you've got them all in, uh, in, in Lightroom, if that's what you're using, then you can select all of the images, right-click on them, choose Edit In, and then... Uh, open as layers in Photoshop mm-hmm. or edit in layers as but so that they all appear in exactly the same layer space um, and that you could zoom in uh, critically on, on one image, but you're actually zooming in on all of them and you can turn off the layers right. and just kind of run through them and see very easily uh, what the effect of your aperture has done to the image
0: be your own judge rather than worrying about what anyone else is telling you. (laughs) I've done a similar test with just even ISO performance and every camera performs differently. And, you know, some people have this threshold of ISO performance that they've said, I just can't shoot above, you know, X number. And as I did my own testing, like, well, for me on the same camera, as someone said, they wouldn't go above X number. I'm fine being at this number. And being my own judge of the image quality results, that was super valuable to me because then I know when I go out and shoot what number I like and how I want it to affect the image quality and so doing your own test here for diffraction that's a really good practice I think that you could do and uh and and you can really kind of see what the effect is to see how it is okay we have we have some other couple of questions here that I wanted to go over. Sure. People wanted to know what t- what affects diffraction. So the first one is focal length. Does focal length affect diffraction?
1: Uh, not, well, yes, but but no. Um, <laughs> it
0: depends. So, uh,
1: and, and I actually put it in here to, uh, to remind myself what it was that, you know, an f-stop is not a t-stop. A t-stop right. is the, the total amount of light that's being let through, but an f-stop is actually a different calculation. And it's the ratio of the system's focal length to the diameter of the entrance pupil. Now, again, this gets kind of complicated. You look in a lens one way, uh, the, the opening is one size. If you flip it around, the opening could be a different size. One's an entrance pupil and one's an exit pupil. Uh-huh. And the f-stop is determined based on the entrance pupil size. So, uh, But again, I don't want to get into the math of it. Right. Um, so yes, there's a difference, but it's still all being condensed down regardless of how much light you're you're letting in. Um, there's a ratio at play and it's all going to hit a sensor of the same size. You might see a difference, but in practicality, you're going to have to crunch numbers in order to figure it out what that difference is going to be. And that takes us away from the entire practicality of just testing and seeing for yourself.
0: So as people are doing a test, would it be valuable to do the test at the uh the widest open sorry the widest angle of a lens versus the longest angle of a lens to compare or is that just not worth it
1: uh, why not i mean it's not <laughs> like you're wasting film
0: <laughs> no right just time that would that would be
1: exactly fun. and and you can see for yourself exactly what that's going to be because uh you know if i've got a 24 to 105 uh, i love that as a kit lens i can test it at 24 i can test it at 50 85 105 and see what the differences are um, and if uh, honestly, you're. it's going to feel pretty well comparable yeah, uh, a, right. across the board.
0: Right. So minor a difference is probably, if you're shorter on time, you don't want to spend the time on it, then just pick a focal length and go with it.
1: Although keep in mind that most zoom lenses will have a sweet spot in their That's zoom true. range in as their well. Fo- and it's yes. usually not at the extreme.
0: At either end, right. It's yeah. somewhere in the middle. So maybe pick somewhere in the middle. If you yeah. don't want to spend a lot of time on this, pick somewhere in the middle and and do the test. Okay. Another question that we had from from Kirk. well actually before I go to Kirk's question. I I love his question, but uh one other thing that I wanted to make sure we covered cuz we did have some people ask about it and we I thought we might get there more naturally and we didn't. So um, I I want to ask specifically you you did mention already uh macro and um and having it kind of it magnification affects this and it makes it so that you have an effective aperture that is much a much bigger number, much smaller aperture than, um, than you might normally see at least on, you know, how the lens is, is normally used. So talk about that a little bit. How is, how does magnification
1: come into play here? So, um, every lens has its maximum aperture rated at infinity focus. And if we go back into the, um, uh, the the film era, this is a great example because, um, If you were using an old bellows camera, you know, that you had to like turn a crank to move the lens further or closer away uh, from the camera. If the lens is as close as possible uh, to uh, to the film plane, that's going to be infinity focus. I mean, it varies based on the cameras. But um, if you want to focus closer to your uh, to your subject, you would move the lens further away from the film plane. And here's the key is the aperture is inside the lens and you're moving it further away from the film plane. So imagine that you have light diffracting through the aperture. And in order to focus closer, it's now further away from the image recording surface. And being further away allows more room for the light to bend off course, right? right? So uh, it's kind of, there's two competing factors here, what you can call the effective aperture which is the amount of light lost, uh, but it also often coincides in in lockstep with uh, the amount of diffraction. Uh, like adding extension tubes onto a lens, for example, will increase your magnification, but it will also shift your uh, your aperture further away from your film plane and increase the the amount of diffraction. The the general rule of thumb, without knowing the uh, entrance and exit pupil ratio, which you'd need to be perfectly accurate, the general rule is uh, if you If you are at one-to-one magnification, your effective aperture is two stops less than at infinity focus. So you've got an f2.8 lens, great. You're focusing, say it's a macro lens, a lot of them are f2.8. By the time you're at one-to-one magnification, you're actually at a 5.6. You've lost two stops. If you add extension tubes onto that, then your effective aperture could be three stops less, so you could be shooting at f8. Um, and this this is really important, because if you normally would be shooting a landscape at f11 or f16, and you convert yourself over to a macro session, well, f16 is going to very, very quickly become f48 or something like that, uh, f45. So we have to take into consideration uh, this effective aperture that gets progressively smaller the closer you get to a subject. And so does your depth of field get shallower. And there's no real way to overcome that unless you get into post-processing techniques like focus stacking, because light's just not going to bend in your favor.
0: Right. Yeah, it makes total sense. I, I hope people kind of caught that as you were talking about it, especially if you go watch the video, the DP Review TV video. I think that'll that'll really help you visualize this so you can understand why that has a an impact. Okay, let's let's move on to Kirk's question here to kind of wrap things up. Uh, his question, and you go through this a little bit in your video. You show the airy disks with a laser, but his question, and maybe you can explain that after I state the question. You go through that. He says, "I'm going to nerd out here, so my apologies. Hey, no apologies for nerding out. That's what <laughs> that's what this show is for." And uh, and then he says, "Lenses are getting super sharp these days, and airy disk is an effect where diffraction from a super sharp lens will create an interference pattern." A friend was recently shooting some backlit snow crystals, and the specular highlights in the image had concentric rings about them, similar to an airy disk. My understanding is a really sharp lens can make any an airy disk appear. That's larger than sensor pixels, starting around f eight or so. Has Don seen any instances where he's seen an airy disk appear in an image? So why don't you why, why don't you go through airy disk? What is that?
1: Sure. Well, um, that that's the. Uh i guess if you have um uh, how's the best way to describe this because this is this might get kind of technical um but the, the airy disc is is a circle that is the result uh of light passing through an opening and then an airy pattern is what emanates from that um that uh it's often uh you know kind of like a ripple effect although it's not it's caused by optical interference and I'm not going to go down that uh, rabbit hole, but (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, but the the idea is that light interferes with itself uh, and uh, just like waves can mash together and kind of have peaks and valleys. Same thing. The sound can do that, too. Uh, And so light uh, is is no exception. And so, uh, you get these concentric rings in certain cases and you'll notice it in regular photography in out of focus, uh, elements. If you've got a specular highlight that's out of focus, uh, yeah, you will see that same phenomenon, although it's not, well, it is, I guess, technically diffraction, but it's not in the same resolution deprecating way that you would uh, find it for in focus elements. Um, I've got some shots that are taken with the Canon MPE 65 millimeter lens that, uh, When it's stopped down even slightly, you can see some out-of-focus elements in the background pick up hexagonal shapes because it's got a uh, six-bladed aperture. uh, And they'll have a bit of a ripple around them, too. Uh, Telescopes, uh, you will see the same phenomenon around stars in, uh, in astrophotography with telescopes. And there's a different kind. Of, uh, of weird bokeh that's somewhat similar if you're using a, uh, a mirror lens. Uh, you can get some really inexpensive telephoto lenses uh, that mimic technology typically used in telescopes where you have uh, a mirror um on, on the base of the telescope that reflects the light back up to, uh, that bottom one would be a primary mirror to a secondary mirror. That's actually right in the middle of the telescope. If you have ever seen a, seen a telescope that has a, like a dark spot right in the middle and you're thinking, well, why that, that doesn't seem useful. Um, it's cause they're artificially sort of doubling the length of the telescope, uh, by using mirrors mm-hmm. and that can create donut bokeh. Um, which looks similar to an area disc because you get these weird donut circle shapes in the background as well. So uh, one thing could potentially be misconstrued for another. Um, But yeah, in out-of-focus areas, you will see that uh, as well. And you can even see it in your own eyes too. Uh, If you have, uh, you know, if you can defocus on something, uh, you might even be able to see a bit of that ripple pattern in your own vision.
0: Gotcha. All right. So yeah, maybe not exactly the same thing as diffraction that was affecting the the bokeh here.
1: Uh oh, well, it's still diffraction, <laughs> but it's it's not uh it's not resolution. Not
0: resolution, right, right, right. Yep. Okay, very good. I think we covered it. I think we I think we did. I think we went through um, diffraction.
1: <laughs> that's uh well, and again, this is such a cursory overview that uh you know what <laughs> Uh, don't don't read the comments in the video when you go and check it because there's there's going to be a lot of people that think they know better than I do, and some of them probably do like from a scientific perspective but uh, from just a bare basic okay i'm a photographer, not a physicist. How can I understand the concept and how is it useful for me as uh, as a creative individual, uh, not somebody that has a uh, you know blackboard and chalk in their office, writing down equations all the time. So, uh, yeah, it, it does get much more complicated than what we've discussed, but sure. for the purposes of image making, that's pretty well all you need to know.
0: Absolutely. And doing your own tests, like that's where the rubber meets the road. When something is negatively impacting your images and you want to know where that happens, doing your own tests so you can be your judge where it happens. That's great. That is, that is valuable information. Troll your heart. Have. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless of whatever the math is or whatever the science is, it doesn't matter. You can go see how it affects your images yourself and know how to avoid it. That's the
1: kind of the point it's how to make
0: the judgment call
1: the more the more you know about it, uh, the more empowered you are to make the right choices
0: right right and and produce cre- create the images you want. I know so i've I've seen it happen earlier on as I was shooting at, at landscapes at much higher f stops than than I probably should have um I just assumed either I missed focus <laughs> or or I had something else going i I had no idea about diffraction I didn't know what it was doing or how it was impacting my images so it, it could be that you've even seen this impacting your images in the past and you just didn't know. That it was diffraction that was causing your issue.
1: Everybody's got to learn it at some point. Right. And for me, that lesson was learned when I first bought the Canon MPE sixty five millimeter macro lens. Um, and I thought, you know, standard photographer logic, I need to increase my depth of field because it's gonna get pretty right. narrow at a high magnification. I take that lens out to go and photograph you know, things like tree bark or you know, lichen and moss and whatever. Uh and every shot was soft. Uh like look like, i don't think it's out of focus and then i put it on a tripod to be sure of that <laughs> it was so confusing to me because when i was looking through the viewfinder of the camera um it looked pretty sharp uh but then the resulting image was super soft and i couldn't figure out what the problem was i was just about to take the lens back and right. say i got a bad copy of it but no it was user error um is my fault for not understanding what diffraction was and the difference between the viewfinder and the resulting image is when you're looking through the viewfinder, the aperture blades are wide open. And then when you take the, uh, the image, and at that point I was photographing at F 16 with an effective aperture of F 96. <laughs> right. And, uh, and so that, that difference, uh, was where all that diffraction was coming from. And so I I quickly realized uh, when I did a similar test, like we described for people to do, where diffraction was going to start to muddy the waters.
0: Excellent. I love it. All right. I, I hope everyone enjoyed that and that it can be a practical thing for you. I'd love to have you let me know if you did a test and like learned where the diffraction point is. I'm calling, I'm I'm making a name up for it, Don. I don't know if there's a real
1: name for it. The diffraction point. You're going to anger a lot of people by just coming up with random terms (laughs) but i agree with you the the point at which diffraction is problematic for you right uh, it sounds accurate enough
0: yeah okay well we'll see we'll see what what happens even if i get bad publicity it's still publicity so that's that's good (laughs) we'll see how it goes all right um i want to thank you don for for joining me i didn't give you much lead time and you were very kind to come on and, and talk through it so thank you for that
1: my uh, pleasure.
0: I want to remind everyone, you can find the show notes over at phototacopodcast.com. And you're going to want to check out that link to the video. Don't miss that DP Review TV video. That's going to really help you to visualize this a little bit, I think. So um, that, that's a good thing to go check out. Uh, my Facebook, Twitter, Instagram links are all in the show notes as well. You can find my work over at I'll have a link there too. Don, where can people find you?
1: Doncom.ca, D-O-N-K-O-M.ca. Pretty well everything is, is linked there. I, I will state as well, though, I've done some other science rabbit hole type conversations on DP Review TV, and there will be more coming. Sure. So uh, do me a big favor and click through that link on the Photo Taco uh, show notes and subscribe because they see where that stuff comes from and it makes me look really good uh, (laughs) if they're gaining subscribers from the videos that I'm putting on that particular channel. So if you like it, Please do me that, uh, that very small gesture of a favor. Um, And I've got a a macro photography workshop coming up. I'm not doing a whole lot of workshops right now, uh, and those that I do are are virtual. Um, But uh, through Princeton Photo Workshop, I've got, it's a uh, four-week session where we've got, I think it's uh, two hours uh, a week, where we go through some really cool fundamentals of photography, and uh, of macro photography. And we have assignments that we review and critique and everything uh, every week. So we're going to have some fun with that. And if you want to kind of get your photography groove back in 2021, that's a great way for you to do it.
0: Love it. Love it. We've done some episodes about macro, some intro stuff on macro. So if you want to get a brief look at what it's going to be like a little bit and the, and the really cool images you can create. It's it's an amazing, amazing thing. You can go check those out. You can just search for macro on over at phototacopodcast.com and see those episodes. But go check out Don's workshop here. Um, not a better guy in the business to teach a macro. So <laughs> go check that out for sure. Thank you so much for, for joining me, Don. I really appreciate it.
1: I hope to be back on again at some point.
0: Absolutely. All right. That's it for this episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. And uh, we'll we'll see you again next month. Photo Taco. Music expressed on this program by independent hosts of Colors do not necessarily reflect the views of Master Photography Podcast, LLC, or its advertisers. Some links mentioned on this program are affiliate links where commissions earned. Ole!